You're now listening to... Hey, welcome to Sanity Shelves. Still don't know how that song ends. That song, as everyone thinks of it, ends. But uh, my name is Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. The Sanity Shelves, of course, is the segment on the Sound of Sanity podcast, the type of episode where we talk about a book that we've just read or one of us is in process of reading and it triggers an interesting subject on, or it triggers an interesting discussion on the subject of the book. And I dare say we'll have an interesting discussion today based on the book that I am going to introduce. Now, who am I though? You might be wondering. I'm Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. And I am joined by the preacher who's a teacher of Shelves, Benjamin J. Solzer. Taught those shelves and I taught them well. You taught those shelves and you taught them well. That's right. These are the things that you had to tell to the shelves. Just be yourselves. And they were. And they were. Okay. Good. Well, we're actually going to talk a lot about that style of philosophical teaching today because that Wow. Uh, not to shelves specifically, but <laughs> more like the be yourself kind of stuff. Huh. Uh, be your be yourself. Be yourself. Oh boy, we have the title of the episode. I'm be so happy. yourself. Be yourself. Be yourself. Hey, Ben. Yeah. Speak, someone who's always himself. <laughs> yes, he is. He's never someone else. Someone someone else. Someone, someone else. He's shelf. never someone else. He's never someone else. He's always his own shelf. Yes. Why don't you introduce that guy? That guy is Jake Mitzel, the pastor who's a master of shelves. Shelves. Yeah. How's it going, Jake? Good. How are you? I'm fantastic because I read a book. That you I'm, read a book? I read a I book. I don't believe it. Yeah. No, I did. Well, I listened to You sure to it wasn't a movie? You got me. <laughs> it was a TikTok. <laughs> I, I saw it. a TikTok. Isn't that all you do? Just sit and watch just, movies? Just sit and watch movies. Yeah. Yep. That's what I do. Call it work. Call it work. Hey, uh, call it courage. That's what I call it. Guys, I read a book by a gentleman named Mitch Hurwitz called Occult America. And let me just read you the thing that Penguin Random House tells you about this book. Quote, from its earliest days, America served as an arena for the revolutions in alternative spirituality that eventually swept the globe. Esoteric philosophies and personas from Freemasonry to spiritualisms, from Madame Blavatsky to Edger Case, dramatically altered the nation's, nation's culture, politics, and religion, yet the mystical roots of our identity are often ignored or overlooked. Opening a new window on the past, Occult America presents a dramatic, pioneering study of the esoteric undercurrents of our history and their profound impact across modern life. Doesn't that sound great? Yeah. Sounds interesting. Well, it was, and I've been looking for a book like this for a long time. Well, not for a long time. I've been looking, that was a lie. I've been looking for a book like this for like a month because I was watching a random documentary where somebody was talking about the suffragette movement and just made an offhanded comment, this expert, that the suffragette movement was full of women who were involved in spiritualism and the occult. And I thought, gee, that's interesting. That'd be something that'd be worth knowing about Mm -hmm. if it's true and so then i thought 
I should find a book on the occult. Now, people may know I grew up liking horror movies and kind of being into that kind of stuff uh, and, and reading about the occult and stuff. And there's all kinds of terrible books about the occult. You can go to your local Barnes and Noble or whatever and find this new age spiritualism section and find books on tarot and all that kind of stuff. And I dare say there's very few worthwhile books in that section because they're all basically written by people who are either way too sympathetic to the occult or people who are just occult practitioners mm-hmm. um, or they're just like cheap kind of cash in like you want to hear the story about the mothman prophecies or the sightings of the slender man kind of just crap just garbage just creepy pasta kind of stuff so i was like i need to find a book that is slender man's not real or is he or, what did those girls do yeah what did those girls do yeah the world's full of after true crime another favorite genre is just like the kind of let's put together all the evidence for ufos or for bigfoot or for creepy kind of stuff and uh, publish a cheap paperback about it so you can find all kinds of books like that and most of them are junk I was like, I want to find a real history written by someone who can maintain some kind of neutrality. Now, this guy, Mitch Hurwitz, he's written a lot of books about the occult. I think he's pretty sympathetic to it. I think he might be a new age sort of dude, but he's enough of a historian to not present his material that way. And I think insofar as he does, you can read between the lines and get something useful out of this book. So I thought this book was interesting and useful, and it traces the history of American occultism. and. It's got chapters on a lot of different things. It's got a whole chapter on the Ouija board and where that comes from. It's got a chapter on Afro-American voodoo stuff. It's 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 got a lot of interesting stuff. And what's good about this book is it won't make you intrigued in the cool sort of mystique. You know, there's nothing in this book that's like exciting. Like this is, this is a history book. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not going to like draw you into the world of seances and I don't, I don't know how to describe what the difference between that and a, another book that would do that is, but it just doesn't make, give it the glamour that a lot of occult books do. But I thought this book was very much worth reading and I would recommend it if, if people are interested And the, the big insights that I got out of it were a, as follows. Number one, you just can't talk about the occult in America without talking about the second great awakening and how, mm. how terrible it was. I mean, you guys can maybe talk about the second great awakening. Like, well, the first great awakening was a, a genuine revival of true religion in America that was rooted in faithful preaching of God's word and produced tremendous fruit. The second great awakening gets a lot murkier because you have this whole school of revivalist preachers who believe that they can create revival essentially by manipulating people. Right. And so you, if you want great histories on, on, on those two awakenings and the differences and trying to parse the differences and Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Religious Affections, trying to parse what's good and what's bad here. In the first Great Awakening? During the first Great Awakening, right. assessing the first Great Awakening. Which was very short. I never... It was really short, like five years, less, three years, something like that. It was a very brief time, yeah. yeah. But it's like a Great Awakening endured and went on and on. Mm-hmm. And if you grew up in a in a, a Baptistic or Southern Baptistic type of tradition, you inherit a lot of cultural um, things from the Second Great Awakening, the altar call, 
is a, a second great awakening thing or the weeping bench it might have been called in in very mm-hmm. very the marriage of music as a tool there's a guy named charles finney who talked about how uh, with the right intonation use of voice and eye contact he can produce emotional results in people and a lot of that style of preaching it really goes all the way back to the second great awakening so it's very hyper emotional sentimental anyhow the books that i was going to suggest the book i was going to suggest is called revival and revivalism by ian murray can i just interject it makes the argument that the second great awakening had a lot of awesome stuff but people didn't really write about it like it happened and it wasn't well documented we know that we it, people who weren't sensationalists, who weren't trying to produce revival through Finney-like manipulation. But it's because that awesome stuff was placed among the context of all this That's sensationalism right. mm-hmm. and all this that, emotional. It, yeah, it ended, yeah. Up being, it ended up being really horrible. Right. And what you would have is these revivalists would come through and create what were literally called burned over districts where they'd whip everybody into a frenzy. Mm-hmm. And then the dust would settle and people would start to say that was actually a whole bunch of this is fraud that was just fraud right. and so then they would it would leave everything cold to god and to the things of god in any kind of stable strong mature truly christian of the spirit way well that's kind of where i want to pick up the story because yeah that's kind of what i thought and that's true but what this book persuasively makes the argument is that Basically, without the Second Great Awakening, you don't have New Age spiritualism. You don't have Mormonism, probably. You don't have just this, all this 18th century, or or I should say 19th century, you know, 1800s into 1900s. Basically, you don't have Norman Vincent Peale. You don't have self-help. You don't have Star Wars. You don't have believe in yourself. You don't have any of this stuff because all this stuff traces its history to the occult. And the reason people were so primed for alternate religions and for egalitarian religions for like i can do this myself i can channel sacred powers is precisely because the second great awakening awakened all these desires in them and then actually gave them no no productive long-term solution nothing of substance yeah so it's like hey let me give you the scent of of steak you know and make you really excited and hungry and then you don't actually get to eat anything. Mm-hmm. And, and so it didn't, it obviously created a lot of people very cynical about religion. And there's a whole strain of that cynicism that lasts to this day. I mean, people still make fun of revival. You still find movies and stuff where we make fun of that style yep. of, of Christian revivalism. But you look like you have another interjection. Oh, I, I mean, I was just thinking after the, after the first Great Awakening, which even, even that had its like, like Jonathan Edwards is going to write, which part of this is real and which part of this is just emotional frenzy. Right, right. Even he, even he at that time is going to be tracking some of this is not actually God's spirit. Right. Second Great Awakening, it, to me, you know, in retrospect, is more like the devil has his cards to play when actual re- revival happens again. He has the exact right poisonous thing that will grow up beside it and due to no doubt failures on the part of various leaders, be able to, to absorb it mm-hmm. and overtake it and become the cultural memory of what revival actually is. Right. It's just interesting to me. And, and hearing you talk about the rise of the occult through it makes me think that even more. Well, you, so this guy talks about the burned over district. He talks about how that becomes 
what he calls the psychic highway. It's like huh. yeah. cult after cult after cult after cult springs up. Joseph Smith comes of, out of that. Yeah. Man, that's um, creepy. Christian science comes out of that. Women gurus of all type come after that, come out of that. It's just, it's, it's, it's one-to-one, like the math, you don't, you don't have to do a lot of math to, to get there. Mm-hmm. It's like in this town, the revival swept through and got everybody in a frenzy and then it went away and they didn't know what to do with and themselves. And this is now the birthplace of... Yeah, of such and such. One, one person in the crowd while Charles Finney was preaching was yeah. a guy named... Right. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. And I don't, yeah. have, I don't have the time or the... That's amazing. You know, I haven't coalesced this into like, you know, it'd be... I, I, you just read the book. Like, I can, I'm not going to do the book for you today. But, but it's just fascinating how the failures of the church bring about all this stuff. And the emotionalism and the kind of effeminacy, you know, all the bad stuff about the second great mm-hmm. awakening yeah. leads directly to to people really being hungry for, you know, there there are as Jake was saying the people who are just like done, like religion's not for me. But also people are really hungry for something, and so then charlatans and frauds come along and say, "Let me show you well, let me show you the real thing." It's also like if you're going to awaken that spiritual appetite and the spiritual awareness, you're I don't know. It's like you are creating a psychic highway for demons or something. Yeah, I think that's true. Just in, in a weird way, like our faculties can be well, stirred up to things we ought not to know and become aware of. We have a greater of. context. The greater context is the Enlightenment. Yeah. And the fact that the age of reason introduced a hyper-materialistic, rational way of thinking that does not jive with the way that God actually made the world. So you have all of these spiritual realities that have always been true. All of these emotional realities that have always been true. That's why you said Star Wars, and mm. it's because it, Joseph Campbell it, and Young. Carl Jung exist because we are not just ra- we are not rational beings or purely rational beings, and the Enlightenment treated us that way, mm-hmm. and and so there's always been a vulnerability, and so you have in the Second Great Awakening all of these these revivalists, and they've rejected so much of what's true about God and God's nature uh, along the way. It's just a very Weak, effete, emotional, effeminate, right. substanceless gospel hmm. that they have to offer that is always going to, and it's presented as Jesus. And so, but it's going to leave people wanting more and right. something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So, so the way this book sort of traces that dynamic in the 19th century in particular is that. The Great Awakening sweeps through. It gets everybody primed for some kind of spiritual revival and for just spiritual utopia. Like they expect the world to be a better place. The Second Great Awakening Mm -hmm. is very much connected to social change, social progress, making a difference in the world now, here and now. And, and, And it doesn't happen. Nothing changes all that much. Life goes on. People are still sinners. They don't have access to any higher power or... Mm-hmm. higher yeah. ability to change themselves and then the occultists come along and so so that's the first interesting thing that i really got out of this book was that but then the type of occultism that came along is, is fascinating because you have what's called the new thought movement which was founded by a guy named phineas quimby and he's this guy in the 1800s who just holds all the stuff that is really obvious to us now, you know, God is everywhere. Spirit is the, you know, the totality of, mm-hmm. of everything. True human. We're beings so, of light. Yeah, we're beings of light. He's just huh. saying this stuff. 
And he's drawing not on... this crude matter. Yeah, not this... <laughs> luminous beings are we. He's a little green guy. Uh, he likes to steal biscuits from robots. Um, <laughs> whack, whack you with my stick. <laughs> whack you with my stick, I will. And right thinking has a healing effect. Yeah. And, and what he's doing... So you have this whole strain of European occultism, which goes all the way back to India and Egypt and all the ancient Gnostic secret knowledge, religions. People um, coming back from the far reaches of the British Empire with things. Yeah, it's it's all the stuff, all the kind of secret knowledge that the apostles are fighting against. Um, all, all the kinds of uh, weird stuff that the Jews had to deal with and like ancient, ancient stuff. So there's this strain of European occultism that's always aristocratic it's always like it's a secret society mm -hmm. like, like the the Sherlock the illuminati Holmes. yeah the illuminati the that sort of feeling and, and it's like you have to be rich and you have to be just like anything else in europe you have to be rich and you have to be a eurocrat a, 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 a bureaucrat <laughs> yes and, um, bureaucrat. yeah that's, that's what awesome. i wanted that you, you have to be an aristocrat you have to you wear a black cape you go to a ball you wear a mask like they play up the 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 theat theatricality and the uh, hidden knowledge part of things and America is not that way. America is democratic. It's in our, it's just in our nature and in our roots. And so we want everyone to have access to the numinous, to the spiritual, to the divine. And so all of our strains of occultism, like that you can't, there, there's Freemasonry, but even Freemasonry, it's like, you're a good citizen of the town, come join our club. Right. It's um, not elite in the same way. Yeah. It's not elite in the same way. You can be a lumberjack and, also be part of the brotherhood that's part of the appeal actually is that a lumberjack can shake hands with a bank president or something like that and that's how american occultism has always been so you have this guy phineas quimby who's just like spirituality is in all things and we can all access that and he starts what's called the new thought movement which comes out of the old thought movement movement old thought being ancient Chinese texts, ancient Babylonian texts, what's the Jewish, you know, Kabbalism, yep. stuff like that. But, but new thought is like, how do we take that into the, the modern era? Christian science comes out of that. Joseph Smith, to some degree, comes out of that. But the guy that you really want to notice is a guy named Ernest Holmes. And Ernest Holmes started something called religious science. Ernest Holmes basically took all that and he combined it with Christianity started this whole thing. I mean, Christian science did something, something similar, but Ernest Holmes believes all that. The manifest universe is the body of God and the incarnation of the spirit is in all of us. Heaven is within me and I can heal myself. And it, as long as I believe in myself and can kind of touch the divine, yep. I can seek enlightenment. I mean, it's very, it's very Eastern influenced as well, but he combines this with a form of what he calls Christianity. And it just takes off. And the fascinating thing- You have to be your own Christ. Yeah, you have to be your own Christ. Tap into the Christ within. And the fascinating thing is that Norman Vincent Peale, Dale Carnegie, all those guys, all the self-help movement of the 20th century explicitly names drops, names drops these people. I mean, Norman Vincent Peale in particular was just doing Ernest Holmes' shtick. He more or less admitted that several times. But he wasn't going out of his way to admit it because he wanted it because Norman Vincent Peale was a preacher and he wanted it to seem like just a mainstream Christian kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and so 
the triumph of believe in yourself, the tri- the 20th century triumph of believe in yourself and all your dreams will come through true has a through line all the way back to like ancient Egyptian cults of the dead and stuff like that. I mean, if we were going to do like the, the clicky version of this, it'd be like the occult history of Benny Hen or something like that, you know, <laughs> which in fact you can trace pretty directly. The first big insight of this book for me was that the second great awakening and Christian failures led to a lot of modern new age stuff and all this kind of stuff led to a lot of paganism, the resurgence of paganism, as I suppose you'd think it would, but also it kind of made me reframe things like TD Jakes and Benny Hen and the modern self-help Christian movements, mm-hmm. the healers, Joyce Meyer, Joel Joyce, Osteen. all those people. I think what I had always thought, or even Joseph Smith, I think of those people, I used to think of those people as derivations of Christianity, perversions of Christianity. And of course, they are. You can argue that. But I think an even better frame is they're just new pagans with a little sprinkling of Christianity on top. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is actually neo-paganism. Trying to be synch- trying to be synchronous. Yeah. yeah. To, uh, Syncretistic? Synch- yeah. Syncretistic, yeah. Yeah. It's actually more useful to think of Joel Osteen in some ways. It's neo-pagan syncretism. There yeah, as a neo-pagan syncretist than it is to think <laughs> of him as, as a perverter of Christianity. His foundational texts aren't, here's the Bible and let me twist it. His foundational texts are... Norman Vincent Peale, let me put a biblical sheen over it. Right. And Norman Vincent huh. Peale comes from Ernest Holmes, who comes from the New Thought Movement, which comes from the Psychic Highway, which comes from the Burned Over District, which comes from the failure of the Second Great Awakening and draws its, its roots all the way back to ancient paganism. So I just thought that that was interesting. The only other thing that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting things about the, in this book, but the, the only other thing that stood out to me that's worth saying on this podcast is just uh, the American egalitarianism of the occult is something relatively new in human history, like the occult and secret knowledge and Gnosticism. I mean, Gnosticism is secret knowledge, right? Yep. These things have always been for the elite <laughs> and good old America. We we really made them. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. It's for the people. We really democratized. Pagan. You have the right to be an occultist, right? You, you have the right to be. An, <laughs> you get to be in it. You get to be right. And, and it's why the occult has always attracted women. It's been a place where women, rebellious women, can be in power. I mean, the number of women gurus in the 19th century, people that are known now by historians, by bad historians as first women preachers and stuff, they, they all found their foothold in kind of occult or occult adjacent practices, you know, in the late 18th and hmm. 19th century. If you've ever heard of the universal friend, he and or she, she's kind of an androgynous figure. I think they claim her as a trans person now, but she was a woman who's known as the first real woman preacher in America. And she, she, grew out of all this stuff you can read about her um so it is true that the suffragette movement of course had a lot in common and had many prominent figures who were into seances and the occult and Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff because any kind of progressive egalitarianism is going to be more attracted to particularly the american strain of occultism so fdr i forget the gentleman's name but fdr's second president one of the guys that really pushed the new deal through was a his second president? Sorry, his second vice president. <laughs> okay. His second of three, because FDR <laughs> was in power for forever. But 
this guy was the guy that actually got the pyramid on the dollar and the eye and everything. He actually was somebody, you know, thanks national treasure. These things actually do have occultic uh-huh. <laughs> origins. How could they not just look at them? I mean, yeah, just look at them. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so occultism is always a, attached to egalitarianism. It's always attached to feminism and it's always attached to utopian idealism. Anybody that's kind of into Henry Wallace. Yeah. Henry Wallace. That's exactly right. Anyone who's kind of into utopian ideals will find a home in the occult. Of course, this book isn't making the point that that's a bad thing. In many ways, this book is like, yay, occult. Thank you for supporting the suffragette movement and Hmm. progressivism and utopian idealism and all of its wonderful forms. Nathan, it almost sounds like you're saying feminism is demonic, but you can't be saying that. So, <laughs> I mean, it really, I think this is, a, if you want to just see the demonic origins of just about everything that we have to put up with these days, including frozen movies telling us to believe in ourselves and not have to get married and just, just be buddies with our snowmen. It, it does all come from this kind of stuff. So, I don't know if there's anything else you guys want to say about that, but I thought it was interesting. How long is the book? It is, well, Jake, I'll tell you, it is 10 hours on Audible, whatever that makes it. Probably a few hundred pages. It's not, it's not exceptionally long. Is it, how academic is it? It's not dry and musty. It's, a, it's like a popular academic. So just history. any, I- anybody listening who's not, like, I had the question, because one, because I, th- I think it's just going to help our, our readers decide whether or not they are our, sure. our listener you listener decide if you want to engage in this or not but also because you said it doesn't glamorize anything and yet you also said that it's sort of like yay cult but also it, i'm just trying to parse like yeah, it, I, I guess, how, how historical how, how much how academic is it how readable is it how does it navigate those things without being too glamorizing it's accurate and it doesn't, so it's academic in the sense that it is accurate, I think, and it does not overhype things. It tells mm-hmm. stories like there was, there were newspaper accounts of Lincoln hosting a seance. Just At basically, Mary Todd. basically for, well, yeah. So this book talks about Mary Todd. It talks about Lincoln. It tells you all the conjectures and legends. And then it says, here's the things that we know. And of course, the things that we know are a lot less interesting than the things that we suspect. So for example, a few newspapers reported a seance that Lincoln held. And there's no reason to think that those newspapers were lying. They were good newspapers. Also, that's all we've got. And it's possible that Lincoln, Lincoln was a man of the people and seances were popular and he could have had a lot of fun. It's very folksy, classic Lincoln. When you read the story of the seance, he's like, these ghosts don't know what to do with military strategy any better than my general. You know, he's got all these, <laughs> right. these Lincoln little quips, and- little quips and stuff. <laughs> so it sounds like just to humor Mary Todd and maybe to thumb his nose at all of his annoying advisors and staff, Lincoln held a seance and just had fun doing stand-up routine the whole time. So <laughs> you got to love the guy. What I meant about not glamorizing the occult is I'm not worried that any of our listeners would read this book and be like, oh, I got to now read the secret teachings of such and such. It does not conjure up the enticement of the occult. It does not tell a lot of interesting supernatural stories. It just kind of reports on what these different figures and people said. It's straightforward. It's facts. It's history. 
And if I'm not like, uh, I've got my master's or doctorate in history, I work a nine to five, I'm tired, I don't have time to engage in something too intellectual. I, I can pick this up as a, as a housewife between doing the dishes and caring for the baby without having to re-engage that more intellectual part of my brain. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's probably a little bit more complicated than like a housewife picking up her favorite novel or something. It, it, maybe on the level of like a New Yorker article, popular history, you know, yeah. de- designed for people to enjoy and to read mm-hmm. as a story, yep. but also not going out of its way to decomplexify things that were in fact complex. Yeah. But it's got a lot of interesting stories, a lot of colorful characters, a lot of anecdotes that are interesting, like like Lincoln hosting the seance. And I just thought it was interesting. I mean, I probably just told you most of what was interesting. A, a lot of it was, okay, do I really want a whole chapter on the history of the Ouija board and where it comes from? And, mm-hmm. and even that in and of itself is, is pretty interesting because you've got like this combination of something that comes from the occult, but you've also got people wanting to claim that it much more comes from the occult than it actually does because they want to create buzz and mystery about a product that they want to sell. And then you have either Milton Br- Bill Bradley or Parker Brothers, I forget which, making it popular and selling it all over the world. And then you have parents complaining about it and people claiming the demons came into their home because of their Ouija board. And so it's an interesting, it's an interesting sociological history combined with spiritual history of things like that. Your interest may vary from chapter to chapter. I wasn't in, as interested in the chapter on afro-american spirituality just because i don't i'm not interested in voodoo and that kind of stuff is mm-hmm. just i i find creepy kind of in a not appealing way just like kind of weird and sick and ra- having raising corpses from the dead and having them do their your do your bidding it's just kind of like icky to me personally so i didn't get as much out of that one there's also a lot about which is interesting and good to know i think about America's religious associations with Hinduism, with India, obviously all the New Age movement and all of the stuff that we mentioned has connections to to Hinduism and Buddhism and India. And so tracing the history of that is it's interesting. I think if, if it sounds interesting to you, based on what I've said, it probably would be interesting to you. I don't think somebody's gonna pick it up and find that it's less than what I've said, probably. Cool. Radical. Radical. Bodacious. Bodacious. Well, I'd like to read it based on what you said. I don't know. It seems easy to not think of the world as a place of spiritual warfare, but this just makes you think more about the fact that you're, you're in, it's Christ is still fighting other religions. Right. And as Christians, that's part of what we're doing. You know what I can say? Read the books that Jake mentioned first, if you don't know that. Like, one of the things mm-hmm. that made it interesting to me was that I was bringing a lot of context. I know something about, about history. I know something about American history. I know something about Christian history. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to place it in a context that made it absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also pretty aware of the 20th century, 20th century popular culture, 20th century pseudo religious culture, Star Wars, intellectual like, culture, intellectual culture. Like, there was a lot that I was able to bring to this book. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just trying to describe my experience. There's a because of who I am and what I'm interested in and what we do on this show and on shows like Sanity at the Movies. I was able to and bring, the bookening and the bookening, matter. of course. I was able to bring a lot of context to this that made it 
like, oh, this felt like just a missing piece of the puzzle. But if you don't already have the puzzle, then I don't know that you need to start with this piece. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be better served to just read a book about the Second Great Awakening or about Revival or, yeah, any, any of the books that Jake mentioned. What were those books again? A revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray is the one that you want to read about the Second Great Awakening for sure. Right. That's the place to start. And it'll provide enough context for the Second Great Awakening in the First Great Awakening and the Enlightenment, Enlightenment Christianity and the French Revolution and things like that in and of itself, I think, if I recall correctly, although it's probably been 15 or 20 years since I've read it. I read it like five years ago, maybe. Yeah. It's a good book. It's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's also helpful because it gives you the right category for revival, which is, oh, that would be great if that happened. It's not like you put up a tent and you say, now we're having a revival, <laughs> which is almost all that I had in my brain as a category for revival. Well, the other thing that this book helped me see is how the wrong category for revival is, in fact, a perversion and a predation of the right category of revival, which is a weird way to say what I'm trying to say, which is just simply that s- somebody who wants to stir people up studies what George Whitfield did, studies what a Wesley did study. They look at what is successful and good and they figure out how could we reproduce that effect without actually bringing the substance. And that is pretty explicitly what a lot of the people in this book did more or less is they looked at the actual religious leaders in the first great awakening even. And they said, I want to do that. I want to have that level of popularity, that level of control. Power. Yeah. And so I'm going to basically recreate that effect, but for my own ends, for my own ends. And it was fascinating. It was, it was interesting. Just another random thought. It was really interesting to place Joseph Smith in that context. I mean, Joseph Smith, who knows why Mormonism took off the way that it did. We could probably make a few guesses, but it's just one of a thousand things like that, that were Hmm. happening at the time. And Joseph Smith's no more interesting or he's just very banal, like in, in the, in the history of this stuff. The people like him are a dime a dozen. His just happens to have got a foothold. The book really makes the argument that the reason things last is because people build disciples. And there's many places in the book where it says such and such a strain of whatever, of of new age philosophy. We don't remember it now because this person didn't take the trouble or wasn't good at raising up the next generation. The next generation. So somebody like Ernest Holmes with Norman Vincent Peale, it's not that Norman Vincent Peale worked for him or anything, but he's lasted because he was able to to transmit it down through other people. Hmm. Whereas the things that you just never would have heard of, it's oftentimes because the person was just bad at working with other people. Good lesson for all of you people trying to start a religious movement out there or a business. Yeah. Interesting book, Occult America by Mitch Hurwitz. Pretty fascinating. Not as good as Daddy Tried. (laughs) That's my Sanity Shelves recommendation. Another recommendation I'll make is that you go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. Support this podcast, support this work, support things like Chip and Lance and The Ville, our creative projects. Get some cool behind the scenes stuff there, some videos, spend more time with us, but mostly just support this work. And until next time, stay sane. <laughs>